0: Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast. My name is Abraham Kim, the Executive Director at the Council of Korean Americans, and I will be your host for today's episode. In continuing with CKA's Arts, Culture, Entertainment, and Sports Initiative, we come to you with Marshall Cho, head boys basketball coach at Lake Oswego High School. We start Marshall's story with his original career as a secondary school math teacher who never forgot his childhood passion for basketball and felt the tug for the court. Later, his calling for basketball soon became too overwhelming to resist, and he followed his heart to teach, mentor, and coach promising basketball players from young high school students to college-level athletes to national-level teams. His career took him abroad to Mozambique and China to teach basketball and represent international branded programs like the NBA and Nike. Through his career, we track some of his personal highs and lows and talk about the importance of core values in defining his coaching program. So we invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview with Coach Marshall Cho.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Uh, my name is Abraham Kim, I would be honored to be here with my friend Marshall Cho. Marshall, how are you doing?
2: Doing great Abe, thanks for having me.
1: So Marshall, let's start from the very beginning. Tell me about, uh, were you born here in the United States or were you born in Korea and, and immigrated to the United States?
2: I was born in South, uh, South Korea, mm-hmm. Jeju Island, Jeju-do actually. Uh, my mother's family is from there, so when she was pregnant with me, Uh, She flew down to Jeju and had me and then we promptly came back to Seoul where my parents were, you know, making making a living. And uh, I immigrated to the U.S. when I was 10 years old, close to 10 years old back in 1986 to Springfield, Oregon.
1: So how was it? And you must have remembered some things when you're 10. You could probably saw this new world in, in Oregon when you
2: arrived. Yeah, I have a younger brother who's two years younger than me and a sister who's seven. And we always joke that, you know, even though the two year difference, uh, my brother Peter doesn't remember a thing. But I remember I remember everything. So I finished through third grade. As the listeners might be familiar with the school year and yeah, with along with the calendar year. So we moved here in February of 86. I repeated third grade. But I rem- I recall everything, you know, my father came maybe three months prior to You know, settle into a situation where he was going to be a a manager of a a 54-unit apartment complex, two stories high, you know, building. And and you come from Korea where apartment complex buildings are 20, 30 stories. And and you get here and you just, you know, you realize that you you really are in a completely different world. My father uh, enticed me uh, and helped me to think about America as, as this great place that I can get to because I can eat unlimited amounts of bananas and he was going to buy me a calculator that was only ten dollars so for a third grade you know Marshall, my korean name is chung ho but you know the third grader and me was i couldn't wait to get to america to experience those things
1: so was this neighborhood uh was it a white neighborhood a mixed neighborhood what kind of neighborhood was it
2: mm-hmm over the 15, about 15, 16 years that my, my parents, you know, lived there, and worked there, it, you know, the demographics changed. But when we moved in 86, it was predominantly white. We were the only Korean family in the, you know, in the vicinity, in the city. We'll get, we'll get into this a little bit, but our, the apartment complex was located right across the street from a really nice public park. that had a tennis court, baseball, you know, field. And obviously for me, uh, an outdoor basketball court that gave me access to learn the game. At a pretty young age, so yeah, it was in in a sense an idyllic, you know, childhood, but also really you know a sheltered one, one that made me question my Korean American identity. But you know, I wasn't aware of it and wrestling with it until later on in my life. But in terms of my parents being around and having a presence in our lives, we were fortunate that, again, as difficult and challenging as that job was, it allowed them to be around and see us grow up and you know, a ten dollar sporting events and orchestra concerts and and whatnot.
1: So how did, let's dig into a little bit about that in terms of your, uh, how you got into basketball. And I imagine uh, originally just started off with you just playing with some of the local kids and just playing basketball after school or on on during the weekends. Mm
2: -hmm. You know, growing up in Korea, soccer and and baseball was my favorite sport. Mm -hmm. Um, As many people may understand, baseball culture is huge in Korea. But when I came to America, you know, again, you know, I was growing up on free and reduced lunch, you know, my parents were barely not making a lot of money. And unfortunately with the relatives who owned this apartment complex, we had free rent. So it's, it's not like I, I lived my life, you know, feeling like I didn't have a lot of things, but also, uh, certain sports, you know, I didn't have access to, right. So I didn't have access to private tennis lessons or like, you know, baseball was really expensive, you know, for, for, you know, entry into basketball was really hard, right? Even though it was maybe $50, $60 for the season, you had to buy all the equipment and whatnot. So, you know, I, I look back on that time a lot and I'm so grateful that I had access to the game because all you needed was a park. You needed some people who were also out there playing and a basketball that cost any range from 20 to $30. So the first basketball that my parents bought me was in fourth grade. So I had been in the States for about a year. And, and again, I wore that thing out until, um, I'll have a story later on, but until about seventh or eighth grade where I had to get a second basketball, but that was my introduction to the game and where I fell in love with the game.
1: So was that also a way to get you, um, I guess, accepted within the community of your kids? I I imagine you were a very good basketball player when you were were young and, and that connected you with a lot of the kids in the
2: neighborhood. Um, ironically, you know, it, I didn't, again, we talk about access, right? Yeah. So I was able to play in the playgrounds, but it, my first organized basketball experience wasn't until seventh grade when mm. this is, again, back in the day when public schools had the budget and had prioritized sports in the schools, right? This is before clubs and pay to play model and all of that, you know, took away access for young people who want to play sports. But my entry into, you know, being accepted was having come in third grade, but growing up playing street soccer every day in Korea. I was pretty professional at it and honestly, I was the best soccer player, you know, when I came to that particular elementary school. So even though I didn't speak the language, you know, at a young age, I understood that sports, if you were good at it, then, you know, along came popularity and acceptance and all the perks of of being good at a sport. So so that allowed an entry into me. but me but in that particular neighborhood you know it took me some time to really work on the game and get to a point where i thought i was like i had a chance to be pretty good
1: so did you go into team sport when you were in high school and when you got older is that how you got into your skills and basketball were developed
2: yeah so you know as i mentioned that seventh grade team you know I, i think it's a Again, it's, it's such an unfortunate thing when I think about it today. You know, the seventh grade coach was my sixth grade teacher. And, it's, you know, that's the very first time where you get to put on that jersey that has your, the name of your middle school and you're representing your community. And it wasn't an, an insane amount of games. I would say we only played about eight games for that season. But that was really the trigger into, okay, now I know how to play organized sports. When I get to high school at Springfield High School, that's what I want to do. So yeah, in in that sense, I, you know, had that shortened season in middle schools, but predominantly my upbringing in terms of learning the game was on the playground. Uh, Until you get to high school, then you have regular access to workouts and gyms and, and things of that nature. So where it's a little bit more organized and formal and time consuming in some sense. And, you know, I got to really sink my teeth into it. But at the same time, you know, I I loved other sports. So by the time I graduated from Springfield High School, I was a three-sport athlete. I played so- soccer in the fall, basketball in the, in the winter, and tennis in the spring. And so not to relive my high school glories, but this is probably the peak. But yeah, by the time I graduated my senior year, I was pretty good at it. And I ended up being captain of all three varsity sports. Wow. So
1: you were naturally athletic and you had a love of the game in all these three games by the time you left high school. So...
2: Yeah, the athleticism was there, the vertical, uh, I was vertically challenged, however, so for the listeners, I'm five feet, eight inches. So there was a cap to how far I could get on. But yeah, just again, having a park across the street and having friends and peers who you can, and, uh, you know, younger siblings who you can go out and play with really lent itself to giving me that foundation.
1: So you went on to college and you studied to become a teacher eventually, correct?
2: No, I I studied to be an accountant, oh, okay. which isn't as exciting. But uh, you know, um, I'm I'm the oldest of three. You know, as I mentioned before, I, growing up on free and reduced lunch and seeing how hard my parents had to work, you know, cleaning for other people, right, and taking care of just all the dirty work that comes with running an apartment complex. It, it really made me. Again, I think a lot of listeners can. Uh, relate to this and that. My desire as the oldest son, the filial—what is it? Filial piety. Um, yeah. That that sense was strong. So, again, being the practical person that I was back then, I decided to go into accounting. I was probably a C minus average student. Meanwhile, my you know social sciences grades were all straight A's. So, I I didn't get very good uh, academic counseling back then. You know, in terms of what I should have followed. But what? Long story short, what happened was. I uh I had a job, accounting job lined up at Boeing. I had done a summer internship prior, you know, very prestigious uh engineering internship, but I snuck in there as an accounting uh major and talked my way into it. Um had a job that was all lined up. But at the same time, um while I was getting rejected from all these uh accounting firms who saw my grades and saw through the nonsense. Saw <laughs> saw through my uh facade and the lies of, you know, whatever this was they mercifully you know was rejected from a lot of these interviews um and in the process i I found an application for teach for america while prepping actually to do an interview accounting job with intel so when i came out of that job uh interview I, i actually looked at it and i remember again representation matters right and that being such a striking moment when i saw this brochure and it was a diverse group of young people who were going into teaching And there was, uh, I remember there was an Asian Asian American woman as one of the, you know, uh, people featured on this brochure. And I thought to myself, that could be me. This sounds, you know, this sounds like something really exciting. And the irony of it all is, you know, I got all these, I got rejected from all these accounting firms, like rightfully so, but Teach for America at that time was perhaps way harder to get into than any of the job interviews I was engaging in. And so I got in and I got assigned to be a middle school math teacher in the South Bronx in the fall of 2000.
1: So you were there for how many years for Teach for America?
2: Yeah, Teach for America, it's a two-year commitment. So Mm -hmm. they serve uh, to basically marry recent undergrads with school districts that are in need of young teachers in the inner cities or in rural areas of the country. And so it was a two-year commitment. But... The the, te- the school that I was teaching at originally assigned to in the Bronx was one of the worst, you know, lowest performing schools in the city. And my at the end of my first year, our principal came in and told us that the school be phased out over a two year period, so that we can start. We should start looking for a job <laughs> two years down the line. But you know, at the same time, the New York City Department of Education had an agreement with Columbia University Teachers College where. If I committed to a third year of teaching, then I could go and get, earn my master's degree. So I did that. I, I taught full-time and went part-time to get my master's in secondary math education, finished my third year at that school in the Bronx, and, and I ended up I, I thought to myself, I, I can't leave this, this field knowing that all I, the only thing that I experienced was a failed school environment. So ironically, at the time I was living in Central Harlem, 118th and Lennox, and I had no idea that four blocks up the street from where I was living on 122nd was a charter school, Future Leaders Institute, a through K-8 charter school that was doing these amazing things. And so I applied, ended up being a teacher there for three years, and proud to say that the graduating class when I left my eighth grade, our college placement director, Brian Smith. A strong male African American figure that grew up in Newark, you know, knew the ropes. Had been to Lawrenceville, had been to Boston College. Again, he he was able to come serve back and give access to the the prep school world for a lot of our graduating eighth graders. So I felt like in that arc that I was able to experience both sides of winning and losing. Right, we'll t- t- touch on that, you know, in terms of coaching. But you know, I did a lot of losing those first three years, but I also experienced what winning looked like in a successful inner city charter school. So I, I felt some sense of co- closure knowing that, you know, I served my part and I could move on to the next thing.
1: Was your family supportive about
2: the idea of you going
1: into teaching uh, after you had been pursuing this kind of business career in your college years?
2: Yeah, you know, my dad was skeptical. Um, he was, you know, he, on his end, you know, why would I turn down a lucrative, well-paying job that would pay for my master's degree if I wanted to and and that, but, my mom, who, who's kind of always known, you know, mothers have this, right, that not to throw dads under the bus, but, you know, my mother really knew what made me tick. And, you know, the fact that I was able to get accepted into Teach for America was based on the fact that all my free time, what I wanted to do was, you know, teach in my Sunday school, right, or run summer camps or give private tennis lessons. And, and so the teacher part was always in me, and she recognized that. She had been studying to be an art teacher herself. She's the oldest of seven, and because you know she needed to make money and give access to college education for her younger siblings who were growing up in Cheju-do and trying to move into the big city in Seoul, yeah. she sacrificed that teaching career for herself. She would have been an exceptional art teacher, but she went to work in a bank instead. So, I think at, at that moment when I when I got accepted and told her, she she said to me. Well, I knew you would be a teacher all along. <laughs> and again, this this is for the audience. Hey, talk to your parents early on. <laughs> you know, I'm here doing this on my own, thinking that I'm taking care of my parents. And all along, you know, I think for my for my mom at least, she would have been supportive. That if I had to, if I had decided to be an Ed major from freshman year on, she would have been on board. But it, it was a it was again a confirmation that I was in the right place and. It would, it ended up being one of the most fulfilling six years of my life.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so after your teaching, you went to Teachers College for your teaching master's. Uh-huh. Um, and then, and what did you study in in uh, doing your master's? That were you going to continue on that math route for for the foreseeable future as your career?
2: No, I I think you know what I realized is I I love teaching middle school math, but I realized that I'm again masquerading, you know, as I was doing. Failing accounting major in college, I think my, I was masquerading as a math teacher because, again, this is that was the assignment that you know that Teach for America could could give me because they when they when they looked at my transcript they realized I didn't have enough to teach social studies or any other subjects. So, you know, I had took calculus, I took you know enough math courses, or they they tossed me into the classroom. But to be honest with you, you know, I went to University of Oregon, and this you know I'm sure. There's listeners that can feel this kind of pressure, you know, for the model minority myth, you know, so many Korean Americans go out and get that Ivy League degree or get that Stanford degree. And so that opportunity to earn, I suppose, that Columbia University degree, you know, I think if I'm really being honest with myself, I did it so that I could do that for my parents. Not that they really cared, but that I I was able to go out and enter one of the top graduate school programs for education. and. We won't mention my GPA through my master's degree, but, you know, I came out with that piece of paper, uh, as I like to remind my players, you know, hey, once you got that paper, you know, the door's open to you. So I absolutely.
1: got it. it. It doesn't matter if you're first place
2: or no. you're last place. Not, everyone gets a piece of paper and that's all that matters after you. And that's you're absolutely right. I am a teacher's college <laughs> grad. That's right. But, you know, it, it's not the same for me, you know, when I, on Saturday mornings, such as this, when you and I are talking, I'm, you know, I got my organ. I'll have my organ sweatshirt on later today or you know that that type of thing. But but it taught me a lot. It, it it made me it helped me I think when I realized, you know, even now as I'm I have the opportunity to coach at the highest level in terms of high school that again, the name name is just the name, right? Hey, bring your game, not your name. So um I think that's what I recognized when I was in that space. And for that I'm grateful.
1: There must have been something more than just the name that really helped honed you at Columbia while you were there? Or was it, did you feel like it was just a, you were just biding your time from that period?
2: I mean, I mean, it was hard, you know, those first few years, again, just imagine being a second and third year teacher at a failing school where during the day, you know, I'm a middle school teacher, but there's not a lot of master's programs that are geared for middle school teachers. You know, with the, the program that I was running through was really, geared towards you know somebody who aspired to be a high school teacher so you know in in, in that sense it's it's similar today there's not a master's program for anybody who wants to go into high school coaching or middle school coaching and and so it's really up to you to make the most of you know what that program will be Um, to be honest with you i only i only remember a handful of classes but there was one class in particular it was called problem solving and the professor was great. You he would just come in and, and he would just give you one hairy, you know, math problem that you would need multiple entries of, you know, looking for a solution. And you spent the entire period just, you know, talking with your peers and trying to figure out this problem. And so I, I think about that one a lot because there's two two things about that. I, I mean I was really struggling to get work done even, you know, it was just such a taxing emotional day. And then you're now you're, you know, trying to do this additional work. And I remember just you know, when I turn in that, you know, when you turn in that paper and you know it's subpar work, but it's the best you got for that moment. Um, this particular professor was very gracious and probably passed me when I didn't deserve to pass. But what that was a, way, you know, that was really a reminder that I needed to turn around during the day and do the same for my students. You know, the pressure to get students who are two, three grade levels behind to for them to pass the state math test is significant. And it's it's something if you, you can quickly lose perspective, you know, when you're, you know, from the top, from the administration in the city on down, or you're being told you need to move, you know, Jimmy to a certain grade level. And yet Jimmy, the night before he didn't eat, you know, he didn't eat or his you know mom didn't come home or, you know, his he has to take care of his five siblings. And so that type of empathy that I was lacking as a young teacher of all the places that I learned. I learned that in a particular class in an ivory tower institution. So, you know, that was, again, um, I needed those reminders to get through those days because the work that I really, you know, had to do to all I had to give at that point wasn't my expertise, but it was my care and it was my commitment to my students. And so, thanks to social media, you know, 20 years later, I still keep in touch with a handful of them. And when they, when my former students thanked me for my time there, I, there's a pang of guilt. Right, um, knowing that I didn't give them the best that I I was capable of, that I have today to give them, but you know it's their grace to me that reminds me that I did the best I could at that time with what I had.
1: So uh, walk me through your journey from in your teachers' career to when you found basketball as a platform to connect with young people. Mm-hmm. I understand. This is right around this time is when you start when you discovered how basketball, it could be another uh, another channel you can connect with young people and speak to them and, and teach them. So walk me through that journey.
2: Yeah. So, you know, even to rewind it back a little bit, my senior year, I was again mentioned that was a starting point guard, starting captain. You know, captain and name only really. I, I didn't know what it really meant to lead my peers, you know, keep them accountable. To get the most out of each other to serve them i look back on that time and realize that the things that i lacked you know in terms of leading peers i needed my coaches to pour into me so that i could do that right so i you know that's something that that i try to do today for my players to offer that type of mentorship but you know i tore my acl with three games to go my senior year so i didn't even get to finish out my senior career I ended up kind of limping into the tennis season and, and then completely tore my ACL um, and so I was really you know out of action for about a year and then you know when I got to college again I spent a lot of time with our student Asian American Christian ministry probably majored in that more than the accounting at the end of the day and you know surrounded myself with other Asian Americans you know, I went from a predominantly white community to Asian American Christian community so that was sort of my bubble but it was a space where I could find myself. Right. And then all of a sudden now I'm plucked in and I'm dropped off into a community in the South Bronx. That's predominantly African-American and Puerto Rican and Dominican and Guatemalan and Honduran, you know, again, you're, you're wrestling with your identity in that sense. Right. But again, and for me, looking back, thinking to myself, gosh, like had I studied harder, (laughs) you know, in high school, maybe if I didn't waste so much time on the basketball court. You know, maybe I'd be somewhere else. You know, you, you catch yourself thinking that way sometimes. Um, even though every day I walked into my classroom during those three years, as challenging as it was, I, I was walking on clouds. You know, I loved every minute of it. But what really the moment that made me realize that it wasn't a waste, that all that time that I spent on the court was actually going to be very useful, was the second day during recess hours, I went out to the yards. And kids are all running around, you know, some of them are playing handball. Some of them are just, you know, playing tag and just being goofy. And, but there was a group of kids playing basketball. And again, this is, I had just gone through the first day where, you know, I have 35 students in 30 chairs. I have, you know, students challenging me because the classroom that I had took over prior year, they had gone through three different teachers. So they test, the kids are going to, going to test you right away. And what they're going to test you on is, are you going to stick around? are you gonna bail on us just like the other teachers or are you really like what you say what you are? And so that second day I went out and I targeted, I identified the best player on the floor and I just went right up to him and I challenged him to a one-on-one game. And again, I'm 5'8", this kid probably is like a 5'10", grader <laughs> taller than me, but I had enough wits about me and, and know-how to beat him one-on-one and do it in a fashion where you know really left an impression on my students so you can imagine as we're going back into the classroom i mean the kids are lost their minds you know they found their hero and it's you know mr cho because mr cho has game and and he just gave them mod buckets you know right so that that period lunch period you know usually when kids are coming back from recess they don't want the last thing they want to do is be in the classroom but they couldn't wait to you know come in and talk about you know what I did you know and and so that was an affirmation that all all those years of uh you know spent on the playgrounds on Mill Street wasn't for waste.
1: So so to walk me through where you went from becoming a teacher you you discovered basketball and then and then basketball became a career track yeah. in terms of your own career development. Uh, Walk me through that journey, uh, how you got to that point. And I know it involves also uh, you being overseas. So uh, walk me through that journey.
2: Yeah. And I would have to say rediscover, right? Mm -hmm. I discovered it in fourth grade, and I lost track of it, I think, in college. Um, And I rediscovered in a different light, not as a player, but as a coach, as somebody who would not just, you know, play the game and, and get joy out of the playing piece, but using the game and giving it back to somebody else and letting that person discover just like I did. So my fifth and sixth year now I'm fast forward I'm, I'm in this charter school in Harlem and for whatever reason, uh, our principal our assistant principal decided that we were going to join a charter school league and I was the coach because again he had seen me playing out in the playgrounds uh, during recess and lunch hours you know with the kids so I'm the guy to you know coach this team so we start with this team and I I had kids from you know because we were such a small school we had players from fifth grade all the way to eighth grade and so we start embark on the season and it turns out we're pretty good and we go an entire season that fifth year that's my first official year of coaching in 2004, 2005. And we get to the championship game undefeated and we lose in just the most heartbreaking fashion. (laughs) I mean, these kids are in tears. A lot of them are, they can't believe, you know, they're gonna quit. And, you know, the other team is rushing the floor, talking trash. And if you, you know, for anybody who might be familiar with working with young men in inner city, Know, again, I don't want to paint this stereotypical picture, but in particular in that time in Harlem, you know the city that that pocket was going through just rapid gentrification right and not only that, you know, I had players, of course, you know fate would have it, most of the players who were on the team were kids who struggled in the classroom, so again, being able to use the game to hold them accountable hey, if you don't have if you don't do your homework, if you don't pass your test, you don't play. And so, not only the carrot of the game, but the accountability that that allowed this young group to have, you know, was really powerful. But at the same time, you know, similar to how these kids in the South Bronx tested me, you know, are you going to abandon me? Are you leaving me? Are you are you going to be one who's committed on this walk with me? Those are the things that young people want to know. Well, heck, adults, I think <laughs> we desire that too. But, but. You know, I had to in that moment remind them, "Hey, we're coming back. We're going to stick together on this, and we're going to win next year." And so that allowed us to really bounce back from that moment of adversity, which many basketball teams you see do, um, even at you know at the highest levels. But I was doing that with my middle school group of seventh and eighth graders, predominantly. And mm-hmm. what we embarked on, we probably spent more time in the gym as a group than any other middle school group in the city and again a storybook ending would have it we come back the next year and this is almost like a disney after school movie (laughs) special (laughs) and we 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 come across opponents that are even big better than the ones we lost the prior year but we get through it and we end up winning the city new york city charter school championship Mm -hmm. and and at the end uh, when we won there was a the championship game was kind of an afterthought the semifinal game was really tough it was a team that had beaten us in the beginning of the year. And I was thinking to myself, I promise these kids we're going to come back and we're going to win. And this opponent is even better and bigger. And, you know, there's, I just don't see how we're going to do it. And the uh, night before the semifinal game, uh, again, this uh, Brian Smith, a good friend of mine that I had mentioned earlier, and he turns to me and says, you know what, Marshall, like as long, you know, a lot of these kids may end up going to other programs, but. This might be the last time they ever have a chance to win when it win a championship of some sort, so I'm like, thanks, buddy, you know, <laughs> thanks for adding that added pressure or more pressure and but it was <laughs> I realized that this moment in time may never come again, and they i I wanted the it, and it was also a realization that this wasn't something that I wanted for myself that I deeply desired for my players to experience this, and I think that's what that was the hook that. And when I knew that I was meant to do this because it wasn't about me, it was about my players. And so um, when we finally won and the kids spontaneously, they lifted me up on their shoulders and we were parading around the gym to our home, you know, crowd section. And I started pumping my arms and and next thing I know, just the relief of knowing that we delivered that on that promise. I just wept. It It was so embarrassing because, you know, everybody's out there, oh, Coach Cho's crying, but I, the, all that, it was just that sense of relief, like, okay, like we did it, like these kids will experience holding up this trophy. And so that's really when the, when the bug struck, ironically, I have not won a championship since that moment. <laughs> so God has a funny sense of humor. So I'm on, I'm still on that chase. He hooked me in and, and here I am 15 years later, but you know, that's my origin story in terms of coaching.
1: So. No doubt that moment for all those students, including you, uh, was a, I imagine it was a pivotal moment for them that what they put their minds to hard work coming together as a team, Mm -hmm. they can achieve success. And, uh, like you said, you know, these opportunities are rare and for a team or a group of young people with a great teacher like yourself Mm -hmm. to be confronted with the opportunity to really become the one on top. Uh, it's probably, was probably amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but a few, and then, but you ended up leaving the school yeah. a few
2: soon after. Yeah. Correct? At the time uh, I was dating, um, my who's Connie, who's now my wife. Um, she was working in Mozambique as a fellow, um, in the public health, international public health sector. And so she was working on HIV AIDS, you know, prevention projects in, in Mozambique. So we had, been, we had been doing a long distance relationship for that, for that last year that I was teaching. I'm really thankful that she actually, you know, she came back during her fellowship and she got to see that game. So we can both point to it and blame that moment, you know, for the journey that we've been on. <laughs> um, but what happened was I finished out my sixth year of teaching. She came back from Mozambique. Uh, we got married in August and then I moved out to Mozambique following her I was a trailing spouse as they call it and so you know I my identity had been so rooted in being the inner city school teacher and if I'm being completely honest with you you know you wrestle with your identity but you I think a lot of it you also wrestle with your pride right because what you end up getting what I ended up getting a lot during those six years was a lot of pat on the back right because there wasn't a lot of Korean Americans you know choosing to go into this field a lot of my friends who were you know in manhattan were again working in finance or banking or lawyers you know, and and so they were i knew that a lot of my friends korean american peers in particular were living vicariously through what i was doing but you know when i got out to mozambique i it that that identity was stripped away it's a former portuguese colony i don't speak portuguese my wife is the one with the full-time job i don't have a job and so it was a really a period of like trying to figure out what what's next, what what should I be you know embarking on? And they would have it. What what I ended up finding out was the MBA was holding a camp as part of their MBA Cares initiative. They were they were holding a camp every year, um, called Basketball Without Borders. They would run it in Europe and Asia, but they also had a big camp in Africa. And what they would the NBA would do is for you know half a week or and culminating in the weekend. They would send NBA players, coaches, scouts, and they would run this camp and they would invite typically 60 to hundred top African players from all over the continent into Johannesburg. And so when I found out that it was only a five hour bus ride from Maputo, the capital city of Mozambique to Johannesburg, I cold called and emailed a bunch of people, got a lot of rejections, but one person in particular wrote back and said, Hey, why don't you come and volunteer? And so I hopped on the bus. I literally, maybe a week or two into um, having moved to Mozambique, uh, hopped on a Greyhound, the Mozambican Greyhound, whatever they would <laughs> call it, hopped and went straight into downtown Jo'burg, which you know you may understand it's very it's not the safest place, you know. And so, um, and I had a, a Zimbabwean missionary pick me up at the at the bus station. Somebody that a new you know friend of a friend. And he took me down to Johannesburg to be a volunteer coach. And so that next day, I, I walk into the gym, they hand me the assignment sheet. And basketball fans out there will appreciate this. Again, I told you about me being vertically challenged. I was assigned to a rebounding and shot blocking station with the Kembe Mutombo and Manute Bull. Manute Bull, seven foot seven inches tall from Sudan, the yeah. Kembe, seven three shot blocking no, no, no legend uh, from Georgetown. Yeah. And so that was my introduction into, you know, being in a space uh, where people were doing basketball full-time. So that, mm-hmm. that sparked a plug and said, hey, maybe this is something that I, I can aspire to do. You know, try to do basketball coaching full-time.
1: Yeah. Wow, that's a Korean-American in Mozambique finding opportunity in Johannesburg, uh, South Africa. It almost sounds
2: like a novel. In some ways, yeah, you can't write that script. Somebody else is writing writing that for me.
1: <laughs> as you got involved with this camp, uh, you got more deeply involved with the camp, and you got the opportunity to uh, link up with with Nike as well through this process. Share with me that experience.
2: Yeah, so you know, from for that camp in particular, you know, it's it's a big show, right? So they come and go, and I think even. 20 years, uh, how long has it been? 14 years later, the NBA has grown to where they have hold offices and, and run programs. Right. So it wasn't, they didn't want it to be a one-off thing, but what that allowed me to do at that, at that camp was there was a a, guy, a gentleman from Spain who had recently been hired to coach the Mozambican women's national team, Alberto Blanco, uh, who's become a good friend. And so when he and I connected at that camp, he said, hey, when you come back, we'll reconnect in Mozambique and I'll plug you in with the national you know, coaches and, and and that scene. So again, I ended up, I was living in Shai Shai, which was three hours north of Maputo. Really nothing going on in the sleepy town that had a, a very devastating flood, you know, maybe five, six years prior, it was a city, it was a village really on the rebound. And I ended up building a basketball court in my backyard and having local kids come. And that's who taught me how to speak Portuguese. And basically, as my wife puts it, I was running a daycare (laughs) of 40, 50 kids. She would come from a full day of, you know, work, office work, programming work, and then find, you know, in our backyard, just filled with, you know, kids of all ages playing basketball, barefoot. So we're staying on that script, you know, the novel form here, Abe. Yeah, but you know, I ended up being really plugged in um, and coaching at the at the highest level, um, helping with the junior national team, helping with one of the top you know clubs in the continent, or in the in the in Mozambique. And so I just loved coaching. But a chance would have it, my after my second year in Mozambique, I came back to Portland, Oregon. For the listeners out there, Beaverton, Oregon, is where the world headquarters for Nike is situated, and. During this time, I, over the years, I had found a mentor, Kevin Carroll, who is you know former moto, like former athletic trainer for the Sixers when Allen Iverson was playing back then. He ended up being a consultant or in-house consultant, you know, catalyst for Nike, and he put me in touch with a gentleman Tony Dorado, who was the national high school manager for Nike, and so we had a coffee hour, a uh, coffee meeting, an informational meeting on campus. And I told him, I said, "Hey, I have a I have a year left in this country, and doing all this coaching, I love it. What would you suggest that I do with this, you know, finite time that I have left here to have an impact, to leave an impact?" And he told me, he gave me advi- an advice that I wasn't listened to, you know, ready to listen to at the time. But he challenged me, as you've done in the, you know, in our, in the CKA uh, event this past year. He challenged me. And his challenge to me was, "Hey, you have to coach the coaches." And I, I didn't want to do that because <laughs> I love being a coach. Uh, I didn't want to deal with adults. But you know, as as I came back, I, went, I flew back to Mozambique a few weeks later, and as I really wrestled with it and thought about it, that that was the only way for the work that I had started to carry on. So I organized coaches clinics, you know, on a regular basis. I, I, you know, picked a handful of coaches that I mentored and when i was leaving that meeting at nike the thing that tony said to me was if you find a way to provide hotel and transportation flight to mozambique i will send you one of my nike elite high school coaches and so you know that i mean for him to do that at that moment i i don't know what what um, motivated him to do that but that's you know we, we still talk about it to this day what uh, why, how how did that come about but long story short I found a way for them to come out. And what Tony did was he chose Mike Jones, who was the head basketball coach at the Matha Catholic High School in Hyattsville, Maryland, one of the most storied high school programs in the country. And they came out, did a clinic you know, that I organized, coaches clinic and kids clinic uh, for a week. And then the second night when they were during their stay, Mike turned to me and said, if you ever come back to the States, I want you to join my coaching staff at the Matha so that was my nike and the math connection as fate would have it my wife ended up getting a job in baltimore and you know i spent the next three years commuting reverse commuting to maryland, to hyatt'sville maryland near college park um, coaching at this high profile
1: basketball program so what would you say as i'm listening to you it sounds like uh like a storybook you know novel story that all of these People are connecting, you met these mm-hmm. people through happenstance and other things, and and they introduced you to others and really set up your return back to the United States mm-hmm. and your coaching here in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, but obviously your your time in Mozambique was a very was an incredible growing period for you as a coach. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering um, if you could put uh, if you could say one one big takeaway that you'd be taking from your experience in Mozambique, what would that be uh, that really puts you on a different path as as a coach? Hmm. That's a really good yeah, that's a really good question. Aside from learning Portuguese, I imagine you were fluent in Portuguese by the time you left.
2: I, w- I was fluent enough to coach on the court yeah. <laughs> you know it it was a deeper reminder i i don't I, I don't think it's something that i take away and say hey this is the one thing i learned but because again mm-hmm. that that spark was really started back in harlem but it was i've had i had enough experiences during that time where my wife and i took in a young man who that i befriended in shai shai an older you know a teenager at the time when we met him uh, isufu Gulamo is his name and he you know, honestly, if he grew up in the States, again, had the type of access that I had, even in Springfield, he would have had, you know, he would be somebody who would have had his college paid for, right, through basketball. And so we took him in to live with us the last year. And and it was a busy year, as you can imagine. You know, I was doing all this work to organize the, the clinic. My wife and actually, I had a significant loss. You know, we had a, we were expecting a baby. Um, and we lost her in February. Um, So it was one of those moments, you know, she was to be Avery is her name. And I I bring this up and it's not something I talk about often, but I want, when I look back on one of the most darkest, you know, hardest times of my life, you know, it's really basketball and and for me to bounce back from that that time was to pour into my players and, and pour into, you know, Isufu who was living with us and to try to live a life that would you know, make Avery proud, right? Um, so a lot of things converge at the end as, as this race to you know, beat time in Mozambique and try to come back to the States. In those months from February to June, um, I was working on rehabilitating a basketball court through the US embassy. So I had you know, written up some grants, I had partnered with a local organization and we were almost you know, close to finishing it up um, and I had to leave before it was done. Right. So it's, again, one of those moments where this sense of closure that I had explained to you with, in terms of winning that championship in middle school in in Harlem and sending them off to all these great prep schools. I, I felt like I didn't get to have that. Right. I left behind a daughter really. And I think about her memory a lot as it drives me towards, you know, what I, how I want to conduct myself on on the sidelines today. But and at the same time Isufu this young man that I had this aspirations for him to come to the US and 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 again use basketball as a platform and and something for him to open up you know doors for it was really hard we ended up not being able to find any opportunities for him in the US so i had to leave him behind where it felt like things were undone and so as my own career was taking off you know i had this opportunity to join the and handle my business I had some unfinished business back in Mozambique. But what that time really reminded me was, as long as I get something started, as long as I pour into the people around me, it turns out they, they, they've been equipped and empowered to do, finish the job themselves. And that's ultimately, I think, the, learn, the lesson that I learned when you think about coaching the coaches. It's, it's not your job to do everything. The only thing that you're supposed to do is pour into the people that, you know, that you're supposed to be leading. By serving them, right? So Isufu, literally a month later, <laughs> gives me a call and says, Coach, I, I'm going to Colombia. <laughs> I said, What are you talking about? And he and another teammate that I coached, uh, they the two of them got a fellowship to study in Colombia mm-hmm. to be PE teachers, you know, based on their basketball uh, prowess. So it wasn't the particular vision that I had of him, but it was still they were using basketball that opened doors for them to go and get a college degree. And Isufu came back, and now he's living in these uh, in Maputo, teaching at the American International School of Mozambique, where I taught, and opened doors for him there. Um, and so he's carrying on that coaching legacy. Ironically, the court that that I you know didn't get to finish, I was about ninety percent done with it in July. I'm having lunch with a good friend of mine in D.C., and I get a call, an international call from Mozambique, and it is the acting ambassador there, um, Todd Chapman, who was actually, I had also started a basketball team at the American International School in Mozambique, had all these expat kids, and I, you know, it's a school that I told my wife, I would never teach at that school because I want to work with the people. I'm I'm with my people, I'm, I'm with my Africans out there, you know, in the fields and on the courts, and of course, you know, fate would have it. I'm teaching at the school that's the, you know, teaching the wealthiest students in the in the country. And he calls me and he says, "Hey, you know that court you started? We're going to have an event. We're go. We finished it, and we're going to have an inauguration event with Teresa Edwards, who is the all-time winningest gold medal gold medalist, Olympic medalist, basketball player, a Hall of Famer, a living legend, and Tracy Murray, who played at UCLA and then played in the NBA for many many years." They were invited to be at this court for an opening ser- celebration. And so, you know, I got this random call while I'm in DC from the ambassador saying, Hey, we did this. You did this. And again, it was those, those are the reminders that I carry with me today that empower me to continue to pour into the kids and, and my assistant coach is knowing that, you know, as long as I do my part in serving them, that the end result. Like we talk about in games, will take care of itself.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, an amazing story. So let's let's move forward into. Uh, you're back in the United States, and you're you're part of this uh, amazing team of coaches in in uh, in in Maryland, and and you were there for a number of years, and and then you ended up in Oregon uh, ultimately. So. Kind of walk me through that. And I, I understand along the way, you also taught at the college level as well, right? Or coached at the college
2: level yeah, uh,
1: as well. So,
2: so when I, when I was coming from the Basketball Without Borders camp in 2006, you know, I, I kind of gave myself a goal and said, Hey, I want to be the first Korean American Division One head coach. You know, and I thought to myself, that would be a 10 year journey at least, right? So by the time I got to uh, Dematha, I was you know 32, 33 years old, you know, had, having pivoted to trying to be a professional basketball coach, without professional pay. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, I was doing the reverse. I I I probably poured into that job more than I got out of it financially because it was so expensive. You know, just driving back and forth for three years, and the stipend each year from Dematha was a thousand dollars. So what I what I used that time was I, I said to myself, this is going to be where I get my master's degree in teaching basketball. And again, one of the most historic programs, Mike Jones, who has done a phenomenal job taking over for Morgan Wooten, who is generally regarded as the best high school coach. He was, you know, I believe, the first high school coach to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. So now I'm in this historic you know program. And I start out at the bottom of the totem pole as an assist freshman assistant coach. I'm thirty-three years old, you know, I'm not making any money and you know, I'm working my way up from the bottom basically. And so I did that, you know, I progressed on to be the head freshman coach the second year and the head J V coach the third year. And, you know, the Matha is such a program in that, you know, there's not a lot of J V high school coaches making the leap to a division one coaching staff, but at the time, um, an opportunity came up for me to join the university of Portland coaching staff, um, as a director of basketball operations. Um, it was a chance to come back home. You know, we had just had our first child, Nathaniel, uh, in Baltimore, and it was just hard doing that commute while my wife was working full time. We didn't have family. So we made that decision, a hard one, but also the right one, I believe to move, move back home. So I ended up joining the university of Portland coaching staff for two years. And you know was on my way to i guess this you know the next chapter of the story to try to be a division one basketball coach
1: so you're you're in Oregon, and I understand during this time there were some some family issues yeah. that emerged that helped that made you decide that you you were you were kind of at a decision point about your career as well as how to take care of your family yeah. and and you decided to take care of your family so yeah Share with, share with you about that.
2: Yeah, you know, and I know you're going to have uh, my good friend Steve back, you know, on on some interview after, and it's something that he and I talk about a lot, just uh, in terms of the amount of sacrifice that that we had to make to make our way up in this profession. But really, the sacrifice that our our wives have to make. My wife was she was pregnant with our second child. You know, the Division One coaching world doesn't really lend itself to you know, in terms of the hours that we put in, I you know, there are coaches who do a good job of balancing that, but I I don't know if there's really really a life work balance when it comes to that environment. Uh, so I was struggling with that number one. Um, but really, uh, my second year, as I was going into our second season, we had just had a couple of games, but in November, late November of my second year on the coaching staff there, my mother got diagnosed with stage four breast cancer, and so. I'm sure a lot of the listeners out there have had family members who have gone through it or going through it but for me it was my first bout with really you know having somebody close to me I've had uncles or I've had you know my grand aunts and others who've had it but it was a you know it was a scary time we didn't know how you know really she was very close to having the cancer cells spread to her organs it was already in her bones and so it was an extremely stressful time and I remember in January, we had this game. University of Portland, you know, if for the list the basketball fans out there is in the same conference as Gonzaga, UIU St. Mary's, really difficult conference. And again, our second year. I was coming from Damatha where we used to win all the games, and I'm on this coaching staff where we're losing, you know, majority of our games. And we beat Gonzaga for the first time in I want to say like 20 years. And the students are rushing the court and I remember distinctly thinking to myself, what am I doing here? You know, what is this all for? My my mom is, you know, we don't know if she's going to make it. And so that was a wake up call. And at the time, my brother, who is uh, Peter Cho, uh, my younger brother, who was, you know, in his own right, you know, making his way in New York City, uh, winning the Michelin star, working at the restaurants like the Spotted Pig and the Breslin. And he was wrestling with what to do next. And it really crystallized for us that, you know, he, he quit the job right away. And with his wife, Young, they moved back to play a part in, you know, helping to, you know, take our mom to the chemo treatments and whatnot. And by that end of that June, you know, my younger sister, who was also teaching through Teach for America, uh, teaching as a grade school teacher in Brooklyn, in Bed-Stuy, um, she had moved back. So it what we ended up doing was we, you know, we had kind of left this bubble of, you know, Oregon, but we as a sibling, as a family, we were all congregating back to take care of our mom. And, you know, there is a happy ending, you know, because all these years later, she's still, you know, getting first rate treatment. And, you know, she's been able to help, you know, launch my brother's, you know, restaurant here, Hanok. he has been able to see, you know, she's been able to see the two youngest grandkids that my sister Maggie had, and, you know, and she's able to attend my high school game. So, you know, in that sense, you know, that that term that that sense of family was very strong in us. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that we grew up really with a lot of challenges and, and, and seeing them sacrifice a lot. But that's, you know, it, it's it gave me an outlet to leave the college game and hop into the high school game where I'm the I just finished my fifth year as the head coach at Lake Isfema High School. So how,
1: how is it different from coaching at the high school level? going to the college level and then coming back to I mean is do you you sense there's a you know obviously you're working with older students and and other things like that but uh tell me the the the, is there a substantive difference in terms of when you're coaching students at these different age brackets
2: yeah i just think in high school they're they're not fully formed they're trying to find out who they are and i understand that in college you do that as well but by the time you come to a, a young man or a woman gets onto campus at 18 they're they've been for the most part so for me as a coach uh, leading young men in this particular case and catching them at 15 years old and in fact you know one of our core values of our program is presence so that means for me i want them to have a sense of pride similar to what i had right when i went to hamlin middle school all i wanted to do was be the starting point guard at springfield high school You know, so for the kids growing up in Lake Oswego, I have access to them when they're fourth, fifth graders, right? Um, And so I get to cultivate that sense of pride and community, that desire and the hope to represent that community. So it it is, you know, in some sense, it's an eight-year journey, if I'm lucky with some of these guys, because I'll meet them at fourth grade for our youth program. And some of them who graduate on, you know, as 12th graders, I, I will have had a hand a consistent hand. I think I I talk, I've been talking about that a lot with just even our school district. How many other teachers are there that you get to have for an eight year journey? Oftentimes you have a math teacher or English teacher or your homeroom teacher you may have for a year, you know, but that's it. You know, maybe in high school you have a teacher you can take two different courses with over a sophomore year to a senior year. But for for myself as a the face of the program, but also somebody who has an active you know, engaged interest in their development, you know, on and off the court, it's a significant opportunity to to form and shape these young minds into thinking about not just themselves. You know, I think that the values that I want to impart on them is to, you know, we live in a pretty privileged uh, community here, to be honest with you, socioeconomically, it's the wealthiest in the state. So how do you, how do I embed the values of service, embed the values of humility, teach them about you know, them being a bigger, you know, part of something bigger than themselves, it's a it's a pretty significant opportunity to impact lives in that sense.
1: So, uh, I'm sure you've seen a lot of great, great athletes come through your program uh, at your high school Oswego and and other and at the college level and and so forth. But I'm wondering, yeah, you know, how do you? Uh, what makes a good player gr- a great player, right? What do you what do you what do you see in, in in students that are if if they work on these things that can become an, a great player? Is there something that you try to instill in a, as a coach or teach your students to reach that highest levels of excellence in the
2: sports? Yeah. The the ones that have gone on to have success. So I I think a lot of it, what you just mentioned, I think it's It's incumbent upon the coach to set that vision and set up a mission that, that allows them to be playing their best basketball by the time they are seniors. So for us, we have, when I first took over the program, I knew that with middle school or high school kids, you, you can't lie to you. If you're not authentic, if you're, what you see isn't what you get, they're going to sniff you out really quick. And so I, I recognize that I'm not one of these people who can you know, come up with the 10 commandments or come up with an entire pyramid of you know, excellence or, or a list of things that, you know, that we need to do. I knew that we needed to just dominate the simple. So pick you know, t- two or three core values that would, that would really, you know, when people looked at our program and our players say, this is what Lake Oswego basketball is about. So for me, the three prior years to getting to Lake Oswego I had read a book by John Gordon. He had read a uh, written a book called One Word, and it was you know when you have a New Year's resolution, you say you come up with these goals and that you're going to go to the gym every day. I'm going to lose you know 20 pounds, or I'm going to you know learn a new craft, or, or but a lot of times these resolutions they fade away because it's there isn't a singular focus, right? So the the book encourages you to pick a word and they, let that be the theme of the theme of the year. So when I was coaching at University of Portland, I was really, again, if I'm being honest, you know, I was wrestling with, am I good enough? Do I belong here? And so when I reflected upon how scared I acted over the course of the year, instead of being having a bias for action, uh, I chose the word courage. I said, that I'm going to find courage, and this is going to define my year. And then the year after that it was presence. I'm going to have a presence Any Any time I step into a room, people are going to know that I was there, right? But at the same time, I'm going to fully engage in whatever task that is in front of me. So that was the theme for me, the second year. And so when I got to Lake oswego i I, I knew that at least those two things I can authentically demonstrate and be me and impart my you know fingerprints all over the program in that way. And then the word that I chose for that first year was trust that I wasn't, again, this is the immigrant in me that knowing that, you know, when I came to Springfield, I was an outsider. When I went to New York city, again, I was an outsider. When I went to, Mozambique, <laughs> I was definitely an outsider. And when I came to the math, even this historic program, I was an outsider. I was one out of the 11 coaches that first year. I was the only non damatha graduate. So what that meant was I had to earn trust. Right? And so that meant again the same thing as I shared with you earlier, my first days of teaching if I didn't earn trust with those students that I would be there that I'm not leaving them, there's no way I would have made it through the first months. I've seen peers quit months into the job so it's the same thing you know I think a lot of people had some skepticism when I first took over this program a lot of parents in particular who had their own agendas for their children, but I had to set a, a vision and a mission to say hey this is a program that's going to reflect the community and so i went about doing that you know a lot of a lot of parents came out of the woodworks looking to transfer in i just closed the door i said no like we may not we're not going to be very good the first few years but we're going to do it with the players who grew up in the backyard here so my first year we were 11 and 14 and the season on a heartbreaking loss second year we're one game better 12 and 13 again uh, end the season on a heartbreaking last second possession, and entering that third year, there was a lot of people who doubt you know who had some questions. you know can this guy do it? And so you know fortunately, <laughs> I'm still here. We ended up turning the cor- corner uh my third year, and we won league, and we ended up having a pretty good season, but those are the core values upon which we built the program. and so if any of my players who have come through it, if they exhibit those three qualities, when I reflect on it, they're the ones who exceeded being just good players, but they really ended up being great players who, who were able to leave a legacy of their own behind.
1: Um, I want to uh, shift to coaching. We've had previous conversations about how coaching is very all-consuming. I think what is, un- what is kind of underlying all of this as we're talking to you about your life as a coach is there's a lot of investment of your time, it's a lot of investment of yourself there's a lot of investment of uh you know, of, of, of financial means as well and i'm wondering as a coach uh, especially as you're investing in these uh in your case men that are going through your teens, uh how do you maintain balance how do you maintain sanity uh because you know, you're 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 molding these let's just say these untrained mm-hmm. stallions let's just sure. call them stallions and on top of that you're dealing with parents you're dealing with schools bureaucracy you're dealing with communities and sports is such a an, an emotional uh, an emotional activity where it, it can it can it can mobilize a community but it all it can also create all kinds of havoc within a community right and so and as a coach you're right in the middle of all of that and and you have to balance all of that so i wonder if, as a coach especially of a of an important team playing at such a high level that, how do you maintain balance?
2: First of all, I think it's just really hard to maintain that. I think if you're a workaholic, to wired (laughs) to be somebody who just pours into a job or an endeavor or an organization, I think it's really hard. What I've really focused on in the last few years is I was telling you about how I came in as a new coach and I had to set the agenda and the vision, right? But at, at the end of the day, even then, you know, we came up short. So that third year, we ended up losing again. <laughs> this is like a running theme. We heartbreaking last second loss, the overtime loss. So it's it's hey, could this get any harder? <laughs> you know, and it just kept on getting harder and harder. And by but by the fourth year, we were the number one ranked team in the state in January on. So for the last two months of the, the year, we were the number one ranked team, had a target on our backs. And so one sense I've made it right. I hey, I delivered on what I promised. Here we are, but we haven't won the big one yet. And we ended up actually losing uh, in the semifinal. I, no, not much different if you really want to talk about the arc of the story to my very first year of teaching and coaching in Harlem. But because the stress was so heavy, you know what? It, what I wanted to do in terms of, I guess, when you use that word balance, I think, okay, I have a load, right? I can't carry the whole thing. And I always tell my players, a a coach-led team is good, but a player-led team is great. So you talk about that whole great, good to great shift. And so I wanted the players to come up with their own word for the year. And the word that they came up with was joy, that they wouldn't lose perspective, that this is all fun and that we're supposed to have joy in the process and the journey. So even when we lost in the semifinal game, devastating, but we ended up In the state tournament, they actually have you play a third place game, (laughs) which is, you know, in some ways it's almost torture, right? Because it's a reminder again that you didn't get there. But what we were able to do was I reminded them, not every team gets to end with the win, a season with the win. So we ended up, even though emotionally it was really hard to bounce back and play the next day, we won that game. And what I remember is the joy that everybody got to have having that sense of closure again. They won something, they ended the season on a win. And so joy was my fourth year. And you know, this year with COVID, we ended up, we won league, uh, we were undefeated. We had a really rocky start of the year, but we, we won our league for the third year running. And even though we, were, we weren't the number one seed like the year before, we were the number seven seed. I knew that once we got to the quarterfinals that we had a chance. And it was because the word that our players chose for this year was belief that it was the juniors who experienced that loss, the ones who took up the torch to lead their group this year. Casey Graber and Sam McVerry, great players, great graduates of our program, great representation of who we are. They chose the word belief, and they, Abe, I, tell, I kid you not, they honestly believed that we were going to win it all <laughs> until the game was canceled that day of our quarterfinal game. Yeah, but it serves to remind me again it's it's i think that's the running theme for us in terms of coaching it's really a faith faith faith-based endeavor you know only one team gets to hold up the trophy at the end you know and so how do you you know get your group to share that workload and that's really something i'm working on now that even though i myself you know don't have that balance if i surround myself with i have exceptional assistant coaches who are just as imbe- invested into the well-being of my players as i am and so now i have brothers really um, of mine that are carrying the load with me and i think that's that's a special thing to be a part of
1: so how has covid-19 impacted your coaching your teaching and how is the team i'm sure with a lot of- games canceled or the prospects of canceling, it, it's impacted
2: um, what you're doing. Yeah, your I think the coaching or the sports industry, the world isn't any different. You know, we're not immune to it than any other businesses or entrepreneurial spirit pursuits that people may have out there. We, yeah. I, I really struggle with it. You know, I think to be honest with you, um, this is my identity. So in some ways it feels very similar to those barren early days in shy shy. What am I doing? What, am I, what's, what, what, what can I do next? You know, how do I provide for my family? I think those are all things, questions that we struggle with. I, a couple of things I am proud of is that we, I think, it really fo- forces you as a leader of a community. If, if this job is bigger than just being a high school coach, right? On the when the seasons run from November to March, I think this is in, in that sense it's a year round. I can't just all of a sudden decide to take that hat off if i go to the local grocery market you know some seventh grader who's been in my camp hey there's coach cho and the mom or the dad will come and we'll talk and and so that kind of you know in that sense it's almost like being a pastor of a you know community or or you know maybe a school president it's somebody that again i'm on the forefront right of representing our community so what i've been thinking about a lot and fortunately you know the most famous alum that we have in our basketball program is Kevin Love so he recently won the Arthur Ashe Courage Award and it was through his work talking about mental health and when he shares his testimony you know it's really when he was a pudgy seventh grader you know that that he you know he lost his grandmother and he really didn't know how to he never learned how to cope and grieve properly and it ended up you know kind of for coming all back when he was this accomplished world, you know, famous basketball player. And so I think about that a lot. I, I think I had this visions of a young Kevin Love, you know, that's in my camp. How would I serve them? You know, and it's just something as simple as how are you doing? Like, what do you need? How can I help you? How can I shout you out? What you, what went well today? You know? And so it's really shifted from because I have a captive audience because you know, I have kids aspiring to play for me. Now I can turn around and use that platform and serve the kids and check in on them. You know, we we've done Zoom workouts for our high school guys for about three months straight. I don't know if there's another high school program that would, did that kind of work, but what it allowed me to do was just like this. You and I are, you know, on a Zoom call. Even though this is a podcast, people will be listening to just our voices. But for right now, I get to see your face, and you get to see mine, and we get to check in on each other. And that kind of connection, you know, even though it's virtual and we all get zoomed out, but the kids, what I found in the three months is that they really, they desire it, they need it, and and so pivoting to that and and understanding, you know, really forcing myself to look at them as teenage boys first before they're potential basketball players for me, has been a good wake up call and a reminder of why we do this.
1: So one of the unique things is that you're, there's not a lot of Korean American coaches in the in the sports or just in any sports in general, and certainly you're serving as a role model and and connecting with other um, not only Korean Americans but but also you're you're representative of working with a lot of different racial and ethnic groups, uh, particularly you know African American um, students, you know uh, white students, you know Hispanic students, and across the board and i'm I'm wondering how being a Korean American coach has really helped you understand race better and the relationships between race racial groups, and how through sports it can be a platform to help build better relations, especially right now in the world that we're living in with racial tensions rising very high and And certainly you're living in Portland, where you know Portland's in the headlines these days so with all the things going on around the country um any thoughts on that yeah you well,
2: know, first of all i'm completely comfortable in saying that black lives matter and not only that i think there i came across a statement recently black lives are precious and the literal translation in korean is right and and my players my former and current players my my colleagues who are african-american Personally, for me, as somebody who has lived a sheltered, in terms of, you know, racial diversity, very sheltered life in Springfield, Eugene, Oregon, to going to a place like, you know, the South Bronx in Harlem, I think about my former players. I think about the how the school districts were so segregated. I think about you know, the fact that I I now have players who are parents and who are having to have conversations. With their own children on how they need to behave when they get pulled over, you know, by a police officer. So, you know, I, th- I think we, especially, particularly those of us who live in that black and white world. And in, in that sense, in basketball, for me, you know, oftentimes I struggle to understand where my place is. And I, I can't say enough how crystallizing this time has been in terms of my mission to be, a, be an ally. Be a part of that bridge building. Yeah, they're. Pre- I mean, the the relationships that I've had with my players are so precious, and there's such value. And if we don't play our part in in sharing the access that we have to better education, to jobs, and, and things that my students that I you know that I had the privilege of teaching, if we're not doing our piece in doing that, um, I think we're wasting a great opportunity. I, one of the most powerful statements, and maybe this is me trying not to answer the question, uh, but um, one of the most powerful statements I heard. I, I, I had the privilege professionally to be a part of a junior national t- team coaches pool. The USA Basketball has selected about 18 to 20 of us in the high school ranks, and and again, you know, it kind of runs that 50 50 split between the coaches. That are the racial makeup is, you know, there are white coaches and there are African American coaches. And I am the lone Asian American coach in that pool. And again, it it's a visual reminder when you look at the Zoom screen, and and that's it. And what one of the talks that we were privileged to have was we had General Martin Dempsey come and speak to the group, and he spoke about how you know he was in the Middle East uh, on one of his assignments, and he was at a cafe somewhere, and he's with the Israeli general, and he turns to General Dempsey and says, "You know what makes a you know what makes America great? And so, Gen- so General Dempsey says, what? And he says, you guys have the dash. And so what's the dash? And he says, well, you have African Americans. You have, you have Indian Americans. You have Asian, you have Korean Americans. You have that the diversity of what, what our country has is the greatest asset. And so we live in that split as Korean Americans. We have that dash when we identify ourselves. And the other powerful thing that General Dempsey said during this time was, he said, people are feeling fearful a lot. The uncertainties are really hard, but belonging is the greatest antidote to fear. So where do we belong? Well, at least the work that you're leading, I I belong in the tribe of Korean Americans, and I know that I I have a place here. I belong in the tribe of other basketball coaches who are trying to do right. You know, and there's these different tribes that I'm a part of that makes me feel less lonely, less alone in this journey. So, you know, I don't don't know if I really answered your question, but those are the things that I I find myself during this COVID time that I'm hanging on to. You know, that I have a purpose holding that dash and that's a privilege and that, you know, my work is in trying to make sure that people who come across my path walk away feeling like they belong to somewhere or, or something.
1: Well, you're you're I know you're doing some work to help be a role model and help other Korean Americans who are entering into uh, the basketball world as as a coach or a player. Share with us
2: some of the work that you're doing right now to help Korean Americans in the basketball. Yeah. So when you know, again, when Steve. And I had the privilege of being a part of the summit, the CKA summit. You know, one of the things that you challenged us with as we were leaving and handing us a challenge coin was, you know, right, to to be challenged by that experience, to gain knowledge about, you know, maybe a space that I'm not aware of. And then really the A part, you know, I think we have to have a bias for action. So, you know, I, for the longest time I thought about, you know, I have, I do over the years have collected a handful of relationships and friendships of others who are in the basketball world. And so we commiserate, we um, encourage each other, but at the same time, I think really it's the, the power is in the younger generations. So, you know, there's a young man that I came across, Daniel Chun, uh recent somewhat recent <laughs> grad of USC, he he started an initiative to start a basketball team called kimchi express. So they, it started as a group of Koreans and pretty soon found out that, you know, <laughs> just with Korean American players, you know, the losses were stacking up, you know, it's evolved over years. And now, you know, it's a team that's trying to make this, you know, tournament called the TVT, the basketball tournament, where the prize at the end of it is $2 million or a million dollars. And so what he started to do was he started a group called an endeavor called kimchi family and just again it's to bring awareness of what koreans are doing in the sports world so in terms of the the space that i occupy in basketball um, i wanted to highlight i wanted to really elevate and empower uh, my peers who aren't by nature self-promoters or you know we're generally humble as a Asian Americans, but have done some really special things. So the first talk that we have, you know, again, I want it to be action-minded as you challenge us to do. So we have a Zoom call coming up uh, this Thursday and it will be Jonathan Yin, who is a, a current assistant coach, video coordinator for the Portland Trailblazers, um, who has an amazing story of his own to tell. But again, it's, it's, it's putting these amazing guys who've sacrificed so much to get to where they are for them to share their stories and hopefully encourage somebody else out there. So excited about that, and hopefully it can build into something that's organic and and powerful. Well, you've been very generous with
1: your time as well as opening up your life uh, to us. And I'd like to conclude our interview with one final question, uh, which is if you could speak to your 19 year old self, what would you advise that young Marshall Cho uh,
2: about life looking back from where you are now. Yeah, I, I would just say, be honest with yourself. And again, you know, my, maybe, in, you know, a lot of these, these types of questions, I don't want to, I don't want to do anything different, because I really love the life that I have today. So perhaps, it, you know, if I went into coaching right away, or if I went at 19 years old, I joined the University of Oregon team and became a student manager and, and had this, you know, that rise, that's like, maybe like Eric Spolstra, who, you know, as the head coach of the Heat, start in the video room and, and work my way up, maybe it, it, I would be at a different place. But, you know, I'm really thankful for the life that I have today, even though it's, it, again, a script that I could not have written at 19. But ultimately, I think what for myself as at 19 or any other 19-year-olds that I mentor today, I think truth bears no question. You know, I think if you're truthful with who you are and what you're gifted at, and you have people who are willing to tell you that to your face, I think it would serve a lot of us well.
1: Well, wonderful. Thank you very much. What a, a great end to a great interview. So thank you for your time, your life, your wisdom, and, and for all the young lives that you've invested in. And Obviously, you're still young, so you've got many more lives to invest in as well. Yeah, thanks, Abe. But, but thank, you. Yeah.
0: thank you.
2: Thank you thank so you. much.
0: Thank you, Marshall. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Korean American Perspectives podcast. We want to especially thank Marshall Cho for his poignant insights and influence on the lives of his young and talented players. For more episodes, please subscribe to our podcast and visit our website at councilka.org. Thank you again and hope you tune in next time to the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to CouncilKA.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's CouncilKA.org.